Rangers back, baby. Was that Polly Gualtieri? Was that Christopher Moltisanti? No. This is your buddy Luke. We're back. Rangers back. It's been a while. Hope you're doing well. I myself took a little vacation. You're saying that's a long vacation, not a little vacation. No, the first two weeks were a vacation. Since then, we've been hard at work on a number of things here at Range HQ. A couple, one big, nah, two couple big things that aren't quite ready for announcement yet, but they could be pretty big. Uh, it's a little vague bookie, I apologize, but all will be revealed soon. Our team is growing, but a lot of this visioning, planning, grant writing, org structuring stuff falls to me, so the podcast needed to take a brief pause. But as a door prize, if you subscribe to the newsletter, which you can do for free at rangemedia.co slash subscribe, that's rangemedia.co dot co slash subscribe you've probably already noticed one of the changes we started doing a weekly roundup of important local state regional and occasionally national news stories stuff we think is underreported or misunderstood or could just use a little additional elevation context or explanation people love it or, or at least they seem to as a journalist i've gotten used to in my life getting about 10 times as many complaints as praise and the response for this so far has been all praise, which is great. So if you aren't already subscribed to the newsletter, sign up. It's it's a good time. Local journalist and poet Alyssa Ball has been helping write that. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to hide behind false modesty. It's pretty good. It's really good. Frequently. <laughs> always pretty good. Sometimes really good. What it is not is original reporting. It's, it's basically analysis. What we're doing is pouring through a bunch of different newspapers every week to sort of help make connections between all the little individual stories that you'll get in daily beat reporting or in, you know, the weekly long form stuff that the Inlander does or other various national magazines, regional magazines, stuff like that to sort of try to provide the larger analytical context for some of these, for stories that sometimes float in the ether. We're sort of plucking them out of the air and lashing them together so you can make better sense of all the atomized bits of information that are happening. And when I say you, I actually mean we, because this is part of how I was already trying to understand the world myself. So I figured we turn it into a news product. It is also very much a pilot program or a program in development. So please, as always, feel free to reach out and tell us what you think. You can always email me at luke at rangemedia.co. You can just reply to the emails when they come in. That also goes to me. And I'm not just saying this. I really, really do value feedback Critical feedback, critical support, 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 love it all. I really appreciate it and welcome it. On the topic of support, Alyssa's help with the newsletter has really, really underscored that I need help producing the podcast. So here's the here's the opportunity. I may or may not have been waiting for. If you have a background in journalistic news production, I honestly think radio, TV, or podcasts would work. And you're looking for some part-time paying work, helping produce a really kick-ass interview show. That's the one we're doing right here in case you weren't clear. The kick-ass interview show is this show range. <laughs> Hit me up, please. If you don't have that background, but you know someone who might, tell them about it too. Have them reach out to me. Maybe also fill them in on range. If they're not familiar, We, we unlike a lot of news we have a perspective, we are critical of power, and that includes the journalistic establishment. I'm guessing that's why y'all listen, tune in. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to anybody, but just to be clear, we're here to be anti-racist, anti-colonial, class-focused. We're here to discuss the ways we can make the Inland Northwest a more just, equitable, and fair place by telling stories and spotlighting the people working toward those ends. So again, if you or a friend, that sounds good, that sounds cool, something you might want to be a part of, 
it's a paying gig. The role I'm envisioning will help schedule guests, co-author questions and scripts and work with Connor and I on the finished product. And it'll be really, really fun. And I think if we can get a couple more little pieces like this together, then there won't have to be such big gaps whenever I have another project to take on. I think we could have shortened this time delay if I had a little bit more help. So that is what we're working on here. Making the conversations like the one we're about to have today more powerful, but also more frequent. If you love range, if you want more of it, help us find a badass producer. Speaking of today's conversation, it's a transition I wrote all by myself. We're taking you all the way back to geological prehistory, baby. Briefly. And then forward a couple million years to the beginnings of white settlement, the colonization of our region, specifically the timberlands of the North Idaho panhandle, all in an attempt to fully wrap our minds around, you guessed it, still on North Idaho. Can't stop thinking about it. I wish I knew how to quit you. Especially literally in the middle of talking to Zach Hagedon and realizing in real time that North Idaho didn't just have a militant labor history like 100 years in the past. I knew that. But there was still enough pro-worker sentiment up there that the panhandle voted reliably democratic and sometimes uniformly democratic in my lifetime. I felt like I needed to dig deeper to understand the switch that flipped like in the mid-90s, and it really was a switch. It was not like a dimmer. It was not like the lights gradually came on and it was incredibly conservative. It was like a switch flipped. 1994, 1995, 1996, in that area. Again, when the panhandle went from decisively democratic to decisively hegemonically Republican. And then, since then, it really has been a dimmer going uh, further and further to the right into a place that... Um, now, even a lot of the Republicans who won in the 90s don't even really recognize anymore. To go back that far and to complete our accidental trilogy on North Idaho, Zach pointed me to sociologist Ryan Pilgrim and her book Pushed Out, a sociological examination, which you might expect from a sociologist, <laughs> an examination of the former mill town of Dover, Idaho, Today, Dover is basically a suburb of Sandpoint, and it's probably most notable in the last decade for the high-end resort community of Dover Bay that hugs the coastline at almost exactly the spot Lake Ponderay dumps into the Ponderay River. But these were also obviously the ancestral lands of the Kalispell, and you can't talk about white settlement without acknowledging that the land we all live on was violently seized from its indigenous inhabitants. And from there, the story is about cycles of capitalization, worker struggle, decline, and eventually recapitalization, and then more struggle. That Dover Bay Resort development was built on the site of the lumber mill that didn't just employ most of the town, it was the whole reason for the town's existence. Like many similar towns, Dover was built by capital to extract as much timber as efficiently as possible before moving on to the next stand of wilderness. The mill was literally floated upriver from a different site in Laclede. And if you drive to Sandpoint on Highway 2, you can, you'll see Laclede. Laclede's still around. Dover's still around. Imagine a massive lumber mill being floated up the Ponderay River from Laclede to Dover. These were migratory work camps, basically, that ended up being permanently settled by people that wanted to actually make their lives and not just be itinerant workers. That's what makes Pushed Out so fascinating to me to look at the colonial history of North Idaho through the lens of one very small town. And so rather than getting, you know, general, vague, abstracted statistics about voting patterns, you get, I think, close to three dozen interviews with the people that actually lived through it in this town. I spoke with Ryan about all of this, from the first Jesuits, 
and even back to the fur trappers who first came to this land and saw dollar signs, to the steady push of capital to extract all of that wealth, to the workers who fought awful conditions to build solid lives and communities for themselves despite the transitory nature of the work. It's intense. When you start reading about what the logging camps were like, the conditions were just abysmal. Yeah. You know, and people fought to make better lives for themselves. And I think that has to be part of the story. And I think, you know, I think that's like when we think about politics and how politics have changed. Many of the people who grew up in Idaho who have, you know, like white settlers who have long histories here, they come from radical roots. Yeah. And I think that that doesn't get talked about very often. So we're talking about it today. And from there, how deindustrialization and automation gradually hollowed out the timber industry until there was very little left. In the case of Dover, when the mill left, almost everything else fell apart too, down to the infrastructure, down to the town's literal drinking water, which in a familiar story, depressed land prices until the point that capital could reinvest, in this case, in an affluent waterfront community for amenity migrants, mostly moving from out of state. And while those two things seem kind of disconnected or dissimilar, they're literally connected. This is how capital recapitulates itself when there's no land to, the the frontiers are gone, right? Every inch of land has been expanded to. We've exploited East and South Asia for everything it's worth. All we have left is to re-cannibalize the places we've already cannibalized in the past with new capital, with a new concept. So that's how you get a, a mill town becoming a resort community. It's rural gentrification. And it's a fascinating story in its own right. The cyclical process of extraction, decline, reinvestment, further extraction. But it also helps, I think, tell the other half of the more common story of Idaho's shift rightward. It wasn't just an overwhelming number of conservative people moving to the area. Although, obviously, let's not kid ourselves, there was a ton of that too. But I really think we need to reckon with what tilled the ground, made the ground fertile for that migration in the first place. It was also that hollowing out, the hollowing out and transformation of the working class over time that opened the door, made it easier to flip that switch once there was a tipping point. So again, Ryan conducted three dozen interviews or so with all residents of this town to dive as deeply into the human impact as possible. That's the work that sociology does. That's why it's so valuable to get these really rich, deep stories, not just the high-level abstracted statistics, but people's actual lived experience. And it yielded some really fascinating insights into what happened to those families who fought for the power of workers and then voted for candidates who supported workers and then just stopped. And what you get when you go that deep are insights like this. So I did my interviews over the first set of Thanksgiving in 2016. So right after the presidential election, and I was interviewing somebody who sounded fairly like radically left. She was an older lady and she'd lived there her entire life. And while I'm interviewing her, you know, her phone rings and she lets it go to the answering machine. And it's Trump calling to thank her for her vote. Oh, wow. That was probably one of the most fascinating moments of my life was like listening to this person like deride development and exploitation and what had happened to her community and her anger, like her interview had to be heavily redacted because she was so angry with the developer. And then she's getting a call from Trump thanking her for voting for him. Wow. I think there's a lot to unpack in there. I think I'm still unpacking it. Like, Sound like something you might want to hang around for? Of course it is. So we're going to be talking about all of that and more with Ryan Pilgrim 
sociology professor at the University of Idaho, author of the fascinating book, Pushed Out, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 40, isn't it really more precise to say it's our own private Idaho? So I, I sort of found myself writing a million questions. I hope you can get to all of them. I don't want to like take up too much of your time here, but you know, I, the first question I asked you was about NAFTA, uh, but your book on Dover starts in like geological prehistory. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> a, a key part of your thesis is that what happened to Idaho throughout the 20th century and, and 19th century is, and it's still happening is kind of intrinsically tied to natural resources and natural amenities. I mean, is that right? Is that why you started where you did? I mean, I think I started where I did because every time I tried to start somewhere, I felt like saying, yeah, but there's also, you have to understand this context, but of course this also is important to understand. Right. Um, and I think when I would interview people or, you know, I'm, I mean, talking about kind of, political and economic politics and economics in Idaho is just really interesting to me. And I would yeah. try and talk to people and I always felt like they weren't starting the story early enough or that, you know, they were missing like this other piece of it. And so every time I tried to contextualize it, I just kept needing to add like a little bit more. Yeah. And I mean, even the geological history to me is interesting. Like, well, how we take place and space for granted sort of, and the, the composition of the soil and Dover is part of the reason they were having sewer issues. And that's from Lake Missoula. I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah, I'm yeah. a, I'm a very big thinker. Sometimes <laughs> maybe yeah. too big. I love the whole Missoula flood narrative, but I didn't realize that the glacial dam was that close to Sandpoint 30 miles East. Yeah. I mean, I've always heard, I've always heard that it was like right about where Clark Fork is. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So the popular story of westward expansion then, so kind of getting into regular history or, you know, recorded <laughs> history is like hard-nosed individualism, pioneers determined to carve out a better life for them, for their families. But you say the project of westward expansion, and you're not the only one, obviously, but it was always ever about making as much money for elites as possible. So can you unpack that a little bit and how the dynamics of that played out in our area? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a both-and story. I think the stories that we tell, I mean, my family, I'm my both sides of my family are fifth generation Montanans and you know, like wow. it's a story about these pioneers who were ranchers in Montana. And that is, doesn't mean that story is not true. Right. But there's an, and you know, like where were those resources going? Why were there, why was there so much demand for timber who profited from that timber? And I've just finished reading Jeff Walter's book, the cold millions. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you've read it or not, but I actually, I had him on the show last year. Yeah. It's an awesome book. So, I mean, I don't want to like compare our, our work because he obviously is like well known and famous and I'm a nerd, but um, <laughs> you know, like the story of Westward expansion is also the story of exploitation Yeah. and on so many levels. Right. And I think sometimes we fail to kind of grapple with the complexities of it. One of the things that I found really fascinating was thinking about kind of the ethnic composition of North Idaho, you know, and like that, kind of late 1800s period where Priscilla Wagner, who's an um, archaeologist, 
said that likely the populate Native American, white, and Chinese population in Idaho were equal. Wow. Right? And so, like, you could think about, like, okay, so what did the demographics of the state look like in, let's say, 1800 when Lewis and Clark came through, or 1803, whatever. But, you know, what did they look like in 1880? And, you know, we take for granted North Idaho is like, well, it's just, you know, it's just a white place. And, yeah. and I want us to think really critically about, well, why? Yeah. What does that look like? Right. Um, and so I think, you know, there are so many things when you start looking really, and I grew up in Sandpoint, or I went to high school in Sandpoint. That's how I know Zach. And yeah. um, I, this is something I felt like I should know and I didn't know about. And I think that was part of why I just felt so compelled to kind of unpack that history. And so, yeah, like when you start reading about what the logging camps were like, the conditions were just abysmal yeah. you know? and people fought to make better lives for themselves. And I think that has to be part of the story. And I think, you know, I think that's like when we think about politics and how politics have changed, many of the people who grew up in Idaho who have, you know, like white settlers who have long histories here, they come from radical roots. Yeah. And I think like that doesn't get talked about very often. So that, you know, that third to third and a third mixture of white people and native people and Chinese people was, was the story of the transition to almost, you know, homogenous whiteness. Was that purely Chinese exclusion and Indian removal or was there, was there other stuff going on? I mean, I didn't, I don't go too deep into that and there are probably, there are much better people to talk to than me, but you know, one of the things I found, I mean, for, yeah, the Indian Removal Act, I mean, I think some of the things that I found really interesting, you know, I grew up mostly in Montana and I learned so much more about Native American history there. And I kind of, I was complaining to one of my colleagues at U of I who teaches in that area. And he was like, well, it's because in Montana, it's part of the Montana constitution that you learn about Native American history and it's not in Idaho. I was like, oh. Yeah, same in Washington. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and you know, one of the things I learned when I was interviewing people, some of the people I interviewed had grown up in Sandpoint in the 1920s and they remembered like trading with the Kalispell tribe. And I talked to the cultural resource manager with the Kalispell tribe. And he told me that one of the main ways that the Kalispell people were confined to the, to the reservation was by making hunting and gathering illegal. Right. So like, there were all these like very explicit like Indian removal projects, but then these also kind of other projects of like excluding how you collect your traditional foods, like when you can collect it. You know, so yeah, that's extraordinarily ex- like an explicit U.S. military project. But but also kind of similar to like in closing the commons in in England, it like took away people's yes. sovereignty. Yes. And I mean, I'm like obsessed. Maybe I put that in my email or maybe we just have similar obsessions. I'm obsessed with the enclosure laws, <laughs> obsessed with them. Yeah. I think I talk about them in the book actually. Um, but I always like every class I teach classes on agriculture and I'm teaching rural sociology. And I think, I think it's such an essential part of a full education is to understand what it means to remove people from the land. And yeah. that like the colonial project, they started at home. You know, they started in England, they started in Scotland, they started in Ireland, like practicing what it means to take people from the land and push them into like the economic engine of capitalism. So your book talks a lot about amenity migration, and I kind of want to get more into that as we get closer to the present day. 
the idea that people from elsewhere sort of move to the rural West searching for things that they don't have back home or things that are uniquely beautiful or uniquely cool. Again, the book enters recorded history in 1807 when David Thompson and the first white explorers came through and he established a trading post in 1809. Was that to you? Was that, were they the first amenity migrants? Was that the first gentrification project or, or is it more correct to look at that? Is it too dangerous to sort of apply sort of modern terms to, to that? Was there something else going on there? Oh gosh, that I have not thought about. I'm not sure I'm ready to, I'm going to think about <laughs> that more. And I think these are nebulous terms, right? The yeah. idea of like extractive industries versus service economies. And right. I would say like, it's, at least on the surface, it seems very much like extraction, particularly of like the pelts they were taking out. So, yeah. but I mean, I think they are all, you can apply those terms, but you can think about them like, well, they're about relationships between humans and yeah. nature and groups of people. And in that regard, like it certainly changed the, the relationship. I'm giving like one of those, like, Hmm. And I, you know, and I know it's dangerous to write to just so of a story or try to like, you know, a, apply sort of modern terms to things. It, it just struck me that in this, in a similar way that the mill residents of Dover were like exploited by, or, you know, are like sort of being pushed out by this new development. That's kind of what happened to the native populations, you know? I mean, I was trying to draw certain connections, and one of those connections was that what I think happens or is happening with when communities are gentrified is tragic and unfair, and it leads to really big feelings, and we don't want, you know, we have a lot of academic and kind of political work to talk about things, but it creates hard feelings. Yeah. And I think but part of what I struggled with in telling that story was this is a much bigger story. Other people were pushed off this place before Dover was there. And I just don't think you can tell these stories without making that really explicit. Yeah, for sure. So then by 1841, the Jesuits come, they immediately notice the forest you write. And then, you know, magically wild coincidence that Dover itself becomes a mill town. And obviously it's not actually a coincidence. So like the story of Dover kind of begins there in, in a certain extent, regardless of when it was founded, it was like the idea that this is a resource that's like unlike any in the world or any in the, the Americas hearing the, the Jesuits describe it. So was sort of the fate of Dover like cast at that point or? Oh yeah. Just, the, I mean, those forests looked a particular way because of their relations, because of the Kalispell people's relationship to the land. The timber was so huge that was coming out of um, that old growth timber that it changed the architecture, right? Balloon, balloon framing. There was such, you know, like it changed, but it was because those forests looked a particular, it didn't look a particular way randomly. They looked a particular way because of um, the Kalispell people's relationship to them. Right. And so like, I think, um, so you know, like our, I, I just like to me that when you start looking at the world, there's all these like pieces that you're missing. And to me, that's really fascinating. But yeah, they found this forest that looked like nothing they had ever seen before. And those forests, when I go, you know, I was just up seeing my mom this weekend up in Sandpoint, what, hike Scotchman's Peak. And the forests don't look like that anymore. Oh, no. Not right? at all. It's not a coincidence. It's because of human people, human's relationship to the land changes that land. And white settlers had a very particular relationship to the land that's different than the Kalispell people did. And I think the Jesuits failed to recognize that relationship. So they got there. Yes, they see these, this timber. The railroad barons see the Clark Fork 
um, river as like a pretty nice passage across the continental divide. Yeah, right. Well, not across the continental divide, but, you know, across the Rocky Mountains. And, right, like, right. So there's all these, like, pieces of it that come together. And, yeah, so Dover's there for a very particular reason because all those little factors came into place. And I think, you know, one of the things that I struggled with in writing this book is it's a very specific story about a very specific place. But yeah. I'm trying to, like, lay a framework to let people say, like, if you read this book, what would it be like to apply this framework to your community? Yeah, I've got so many, so many thoughts that we could just, I think I could spend an hour <laughs> talking to you on this, like, part, but I kind of want to get closer to uh, right, present right. day. <laughs> but so, you know, the Jesuits, but eventually the, the Protestant puritanical push that came later, all of that primitive accumulation and early capitalism was built on improvement of the land. And it's like, you don't even have the right frame of mind. And I don't, and again, like the fact that you just pointed out to me means I wasn't thinking about it either. Like the trees were that way because there was a a fundamentally different value set among the people who had always lived there than the people who came in the 1800s. And they didn't even recognize that it's like, you know, cause there's a lot of conversation around those colonization efforts of civilizing people and then improving the land. Those things go hand in hand and that, you know, a lot of the reasons or a lot of justifications for stripping land from people was the idea that they weren't improving it, quote unquote. And so mm-hmm. that, that's fascinating to me. And I hadn't really thought, I hadn't thought of it in, in the specifically the context of where, you know, we live. Yeah. I just, I think, I, I don't know. I thought a lot about that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe sketch out the interplay and eventual conflict, you know, between these, these sort of aspirational poor, the pioneers, and then the, and the elite sort of the capitalist elite who ran the mills and mines of North Idaho. Like, how did that sort of labor militancy that you were mentioning earlier, how did it arise or what was the context? You know, I am, this is, that's not really an area I've been a ton of time deep diving into. It's just like probably like 10 pages or something. Sure. But I mean, a lot of it was that the working conditions were really, really abysmal. I mean, and they were dangerous. You know, even the people I interviewed, they had watched like one of them had watched his dad get blown up wow. um, trying to, take care of a stump or, you know, I don't even know what he was doing. I didn't, I didn't ask him like, you know, but there was just, it was so dangerous and it was so difficult. Um, and I mean, one of the things that I thought was just, there were just so many like little interesting tidbits when I was doing the research for the book that, you know, the mill in Dover, well, the mill in Dover had been moved up the river from Laclede, which is about 20 miles down river from it and it burned down. Um, and, but there were mill fires all the time and it, they said it was really always hard to know, like, was it industrial sabotage or was it just like, Oh, people are smoking and there's a lot of wood around that there was so the industrial sabotage was so typical that it was a pretty, like, it was a, a large concern. So when, when did that move happen or when did the, when did the Laclede? Oh, so that was the, I, the, I think it got moved. The mill was moved in like 1921 or 26, something like that. I think it was moved in 21. Um, there had been a mill there before, but it hadn't been called Dover yet. It had been called Wealthy Idaho. So there had been a mill there, but it was like a gotcha. tar paper, like shack town. Oh, wow. That mill closed. And then the next guy, A.C. White, who by all accounts was like a pretty pretty ethical, like upstanding, good person to work for, moved his mill in Laclede to Dover. Or like too wealthy and ring was named Dover. And like there was a school there and a church. And it really became a community at that point. 
And that's when, then the, the mill also like provided water and stuff. Yeah. So when I, I mean, I'm assuming it was AC white, like put their water system in. Um, and then it changed hands a number of times. Like, so the mill was closed during the depression. Um, and that was something that was kind of interesting to me. was just that it wasn't this kind of continuous working mill, like many places. And, you know, like it was subject to economic ups and downs and, but yeah, they put in the water system that the community relied on and many of the sort of, uh, so there was a public, it was considered a public beach, um, that was on the mill property and just a lot of the public spaces that the community enjoyed. I mean, I thought some of the things right. that were interesting were just like, you know, we all had a milk cow. We just let her, we just let her out in the morning and let her graze kind of on the, in the commons, you know, thinking about like how space was organized and how, the timber was the the resource that the mill cared about. Yeah, they don't care about cows or anything. Um, but, yeah, there was a very, I mean, there was radical labor organizing in North Idaho starting, and I think, like, about 1910 and, like, the summer of 1917-18 was just super volatile, like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, which is part of the reason I love right. that book so much. Yeah, like, I've been obsessed totally. with her for a long time. I was like, finally, she's getting her due, you know? made my seventh grader read her autobiography for his biography project for, you know, like I've been super into her for a long time. And, you know, like she was in Sandpoint giving like rebel rousing talks to 700 people. Like I think maybe at the, you know, just like all this stuff happening. I thought one of the things and I, this was like a rabbit hole I didn't go all the way into, but then there was kind of a more like conservative labor organizing. I think it was called like the four L's. It took its place. So like, okay, so we are the more reasonable, but they did eventually really pretty fundamentally change the working relations between timber companies and um, loggers and mill workers. And so, you know, like they got six six day work weeks and um, eight hour days. So there were some pretty they, radical. They being the, the, the labor movement in general or specifically the conservative? I would say the labor sort of movement in general, right? You, yeah. Like does can the conservative labor movement have, you know, like they become a, they can push back against the more, see more reasonable, their demands seem more reasonable than like the five day work week or this, you know? Right. And I, so I think like one of the things I was trying to do in the book is to say that, yes, people want those, that period between about like 19, 50 and 1975, like it was pretty wonderful, but it was wonderful for a particular reason. And even in those moments, the timber industry was, you know, they weren't just like, well, I guess we're going to pay our workers more. It's just going to, we're going to have less revenue. You know, they're like actively trying to figure out how they can increase their profits. Right. And people are expensive. So that was sort of the golden age of Dover in your, in your research was 50 to 75. I would say even before that, like that's like 19, maybe 35 to 75, maybe 85, but yeah, that period. So it's pretty clear that like, like so many other places, it was the labor movement that built the middle class in North Idaho. Yeah. I mean, and that was really interesting, like doing interviews with people who still lived in the mill houses, had raised their children there you know, like maybe in their sixties, like, yeah, I have, you know, my husband, we were, it was a union job or my husband worked on unionizing the mill and I, all my babies were paid for. And, you know, I was a stay at home mom and we took our kids to the lake in the summer and yeah. And they were pretty, they were, they very much connected the people I interviewed who had grown up there, like connected their family success to that labor movement. 
which I hadn't expected. So the thing that then eventually led me to your work was talking with Zach about the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But then as I was like sort of chatting with him in real time, I was like looking at election results that I, I don't know how the first legislative district works, but I could only find stuff back to 1984. Seeing this really decisive shift all at once, like North Idaho was reliably democratic from 84 to 96. Every election I was able to find data on it was like a straight Democratic ticket one. Do you know if it was like that before then as well? It sounds like it It must have been or might have been. I mean, I feel, like, I feel like Zach would know that better than I did, but I feel pretty, I mean, North Idaho was known as a pretty, my understanding was it was known as a very, at least that my common knowledge, but I haven't looked at the data, was, yeah, that absolutely was true. Like Wallace, Sandpoint, like, you know. Totally, Silver Valley. Mining, yeah. yeah, the mining unions and the timber unions were quite, you know, strong and so maybe I should ask him about the, the sort of ebb and flow of that constituency throughout the years, but the labor compromise that allowed the new deal and stuff kind of led to a more moderate unionism. Is that kind of what f it feels like those folks that you were talking to that were talking about raising their kids in, on a union salary? Did they seem sort of in that sort of less, maybe less militant than they'd been at the turn of the century? Oh gosh, this is a difficult question. Um, <laughs> none of them seemed militant. No, yeah, they yeah. all seemed quite, they weren't telling me these stories like to be pro union as much as like to tell me, or at least my impression was more like we had such a wonderful life here. Yeah. And let me yeah. tell you about like, you know, just these little anecdotes, like, and to me, like as somebody who was trying to connect it to the broader kind of social conditions, I think yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. tuned into that. I thought some of the things that were the really, I had, I, so I did my interviews over the first set of Thanksgiving in 2016. So right after the presidential election. And I was interviewing somebody who sounded fairly like politically radically left. And while I'm interviewing, and she was, you know, in her, she was an older lady and she'd lived there her entire life. And while I'm interviewing her, you know, her phone rings and she lets it go to the answering machine. And it's Trump calling uh, to thank her for her vote. Um, oh, wow. and it was one of the most kind of pivotal, just like sitting there and trying to wrap my head around these, what felt like very, and really I thought the book was re going to resonate or it was going to be important because it was trying to grapple with some of these changes and how people are processing them. And I think it yeah. has a different resonance because of COVID and zoom towns and things, but that was probably one of the most fascinating moments of my life was like listening to this person, yeah. like, deride development and exploitation and what had happened to her community and her anger, like her interview had to be heavily redacted and like, because she was so angry with the developer yeah. and then she's getting a call from Trump thanking her for voting for him. So, you know, I thought like, I think there's a lot to unpack in there. I think I'm still unpacking it like in my head, you know, like, okay, well what emotion, like her interview was so emotional, you know, and thinking uh. about like how emotions resonate and, were you with her in person or were you talking to her on the phone? I was with her in person. So did, did you guys talk about Trump at all at that point? No, because it was, you know, she was answering a question and I don't even know yeah. if, yeah, if she even noticed or she just kind of took it for granted that her answering machine was playing in the background. Or yeah, I should look, wow. I should re-listen to the interview and see if I can pick up that moment again, but I don't think we talked about it. That's so fascinating to me. Okay. So you read about how like, you know, the, the, the decline of Dover was, a lot of different things, uh, but the globalization being one of the big catalysts hitting in the late seventies and, and certainly the eighties, mm -hmm. the eighties 
was under Reagan, obviously. Mm-hmm. Did that fuel people's voting? Like, did, did anybody talk about the decline and, and connect it to Reaganism when you were interviewing no. them? Or, no. That's so interesting I mean, to me. I mean, I think what's fascinating is, you know, Idaho became a right to work state in, I think, 85. And I just became really fascinated with right to work. And there were no other states that went right to work in the 80s, to the best of my knowledge. I, but I'm pretty sure Idaho was the only state that went right to work in the 80s. And I thought it was really, that was kind of fascinating. I don't think anyone, and I thought this was fascinating because they did the same thing when they were talking about the development. They talked about, you know, environmental policy uh, yeah. uh, had, was what shut the mills down. Regulation was what shut the mills down. It's the specific regulation and policies, not the sort of invisible hand of the market that people noticed. Yeah. Is and that I mean, right? I think I mean, that, yeah, I think that's what, I mean, and I think it's, to me, that speaks to how effective like ideology and kind of rhetoric becomes because it was to, so when I did the, started doing the research on, I really wanted to know how many people had worked in the mills and I thought there would probably be data on that. Um, and I could not find data and I kind of shook a bunch of trees and finally like talked to someone who CNR at U of I who told me, well, they changed how they collected data on timber workers in the mid eighties. So you can't like, you can't compare the numbers because they're, they changed the industry, but you look at the, the information that's coming out from people. It looks like, Oh gosh, the timber industry was decimated during this exact period. And they even like produce, you know, these are like other academics are like producing papers that show like, here's when the, um, like the, Oh gosh, the Endangered Species Act went in and here's how many limb mills there are in the community, right? And it's like these direct declines. Yeah. You know, and it and so I was like, well, I wonder if that's the right correlation. You know, is are they yeah. are those things correlated? And what I I found I started finding data on how much timber was produced and the amount of timber was produced was increasing every year. Oh wow. Um and I talk about that in the book, but a little bit. And I mean, maybe it's something that just isn't even it, to me, it was just one of those mind boggling moments that the amount of timber produced like doubled from, I'm trying to think, don't quote me on this, read the book, but it's like from 19, I want to say like 1975 to 2008, the amount of timber wow. produced in Idaho or in North Idaho doubled. The no- amount of mills decreased from like 108 to 35. So yeah, you can say like, Oh, all the mills are closing. They're not closing. They're consolidating. They're still producing tons of timber. They just don't need as many workers to do it because it's so much more automated. So like that story, you know, when I, when I found that data, I was like, no, that can't be right. I must be misunderstanding this. You know, like I double, I second guessed myself so consistently for so long. Like, no, this is not the story. The story is the timber market. The timber industry died in North Idaho. So I was like, but how can they be producing like a million board feet a year if it's dead? They were only producing like, and so this, the way that the story gets told in a way like confirms these this rhetoric about like um, environmental protection and this and that and and certainly like the wilderness the roadless wilderness act closed down major portions of um, land, but my a lot of my research suggested like that was land that the timber industry thought was too expensive to lodge. What was that act again? Sorry. Um, so wilderness, um, the roadless wilderness act. Roadless wilderness act. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's like the same time that some of NAFTA and some of those 
things are going through, you know, and then I started reading about Weyerhaeuser and that um, the timber in the timber in the West grows quite slowly compared to the Southeast and our mountains are super high compared to the Southeast and we have a lot more forest fires. So, you know, like it becomes prohibitively expensive at some point to build a road to the middle of nowhere to haul down trees that might burn, you know? So the timber industry moves to um, like that Tennessee, like that Southeastern region. Um, To those more rolling like Blue Ridge mountains or. uh, Yeah. Um, And I thought that was fascinating, right? Because we don't ever think about like, well, those, those Kentucky people are stealing our jobs. Right. But despite that, the production in Idaho still did go up through 2008. That That's also fascinating. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that I could never, I couldn't quite like pin down the research and this is where NAFTA comes in. And I think it's super fascinating. And I quote Zach in my, in the book about this. So NAFTA meant that it was the Canadian lumber became quite inexpensive because right. or Canadian timber became quite inexpensive because, um, Basically, the timber industry, my understanding in Canada, is subsidized. And so we weren't logging as much, but we were taking the trees and, like, turning them into lumber in Idaho. I see. So so there, yeah, okay, so the mills weren't shutting down, but the logging had slowed. We were just getting our our lumber from Canada. We were getting our timber from Canada, yeah. I think. I don't know for sure. Like, there is not, there is not very easy, like, I went to CNR, like, um, natural resources department and just tried to get data everywhere. And I just couldn't really, I struggled to get a lot of data. Um, and so I, you know, Zach and I sat and talked for a long time trying to, you know, see what he had found. So he'd written some interesting things about it. And, but the timing for NAFTA is a little off because our, the mills were already shutting down before NAFTA came in. Oh, like yeah. you can look at the graphs and the mills are shutting down before NAFTA has time to take effect. So this is where, like, I, I, it does seem like there's still got to be like a bridge we can jump because, like, everything you're saying like makes perfect sense to me. And yet, as late as '94, Democrats were running running unopposed. And I think this is like unrelated in a lot of ways. I think this is going to be provocative, but I also think it's absolutely true. I think okay. it's the Aryan nations, and I think it's not that people's voting habits change dramatically. I think I bet they're relatively stable in North Idaho. I think it's a selection bias. I think we've had a huge, I think if you look at population trends, you would find that, that there's a, a better correlation there. So I think, you know, um, Mark Furman moves to North Idaho. I'm trying to think what year I was in high school when he, I think I was a freshman in high school during the, you know, he moves to Sandpoint. There's tons of, uh, we have Butler and I think North Idaho gets Ruby Ridge. We start getting a reputation as like a safe haven for a different kind of very far right voter. Yeah. Or I have heard that like the police, like retirement magazines that oh, get yeah. put out, like advertised to come to North Idaho. And one of the people, well, I'm not to say who I interviewed in the book, but George Eskridge was a Republican from Dover. Mm-hmm. He's like old family. There's Eskridge road. He's Republican. Um, but Heather Scott beat him in the primaries and George Eskridge is beloved in like in Dover, just absolutely beloved. Like everybody, you know, like those people that everyone like wants to say they know, but George is like that guy, you know? So like, how does Heather Scott beat 
George Eskridge, that there's a different population of people who who don't know that you're supposed to think George Eskridge is the coolest guy, you know? And so she beat him in the primaries. And so I think it's a whole, I think it's a, so I think it's like pulling and I think it's a population shift. Right. But that's like more like 2014. I'm talking about like 96. Yeah. But like, but Furman moves to Sandpoint in like 95. The Aryan Nations is super active up there. So back then, and I, so I, I hear you, I'm just trying to figure out like, so Sean Keogh beats Tim Tucker in 96. Mm-hmm. Tim Tucker runs unopposed for two terms prior to that. And the last time he had a Republican rival in 1990, he won by 20 points or 15 points, 57 to 42. Then by 96, Sean Keogh beats Tim Tucker 59 to 40. So like that's in, in like the space of two years, there's a dramatic shift and then that never comes back. And I guess it's like, I, I hear you about because like I was, I was seeing skinheads in Spokane in the mid nineties too. So I guess we're talking about like, okay, so the shift from like blue to like reasonable red to far red. And yeah. I think that, I mean, like Sean Keogh was one of the people who was talking about NAFTA. And I wonder if it's a reaction against Clinton too. That's what's starting to make sense to me. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to create like a just so story here, but it's, you know, I have seen in the course of my life and you, you obviously lived there, right? So I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, 60 miles away, but my cousin lives at Hauser Lake on a subdevelopment that's a hundred percent law enforcement officers mm-hmm. <laughs> besides them retired Leos from California, that housing development was built in like 2010, you know? So, and, and clearly Furman was the beginning of a migration, but that migration did only begun for like a year when Keogh got elected. And so that's where I'm just trying to figure out, like, but it does make sense to me that like what you're saying is like people weren't seeing the underlying market forces, but they were seeing the outward regulations and, and, or even just like the, the environmental agitation that was happening. And then the, the fascinating thing to me about NAFTA and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this is Clinton passed it, but it had more Republican support in the house than Democrat support. So it was like a bipartisan bill, but it got pegged to Clinton. Is that just better politicking on the part of the Republicans or? I mean, like if you look at Keo, I think I, Zach quotes her and I quoted Zach's quote of her, like, you know, like Clinton says that this is going to be good except for, for some pockets were those pockets that it's going to hurt. Right. And so, right. you know, like I think, and I think this is what's important to like differentiate. Like I'm not saying that NAFTA didn't hurt people cause it, it had consequences, but I think right. what is more important is rhetorically to make yes. an argument that you are being left behind when you are being left behind and you don't really have a good explanation for what it was. And you know what I think is really, I'm just trying to think like at that moment when NAFTA was passed, I was still living in Montana and my dad was a rancher. And, and I think, I mean, this is, this goes to like the 2016 election too. I think the amount of like, I didn't ever think of my parents as particularly political people. And when Clinton got elected, my dad like lost his mind, you know? And I think like, Part of that is like the Ross Perot element that was injected into that election, perhaps, that was this populist voice that kind of pointed out the ways that Clinton failed to take into account mm-hmm. the need. And so, like, it gave this, like, national stage to this populist. And the best, like, local example of that was perhaps some of the, like, people like Keo that are speaking against NASA and saying, 
you are suffering. I see you're suffering. And I think she's a really awesome person, frankly. Like, she's pro-education. Would kill her to be back in office. But I'm um, actually talking to her later today for this. Okay. So, uh, um, yeah. But, you know, and she was like, she was talking a good game about logging, but guess what? You elected her. The logging hasn't come back. <laughs> You know, well, because so, these, are, these are forces that are outside of anybody's control yeah. and even out of polit- politicians' well, control. That's the thing is they're actually not outside of people's control, but we pretend like they are. But hmm. they're outside of her control for, for sure. Right. You know, um, we could, and I think like one of the really exciting things that's not getting talked about very much right now, I can't remember the name of it, is like Biden's passing, working with other nations to pass like tax and economic policy that is global in nature. Because right. it doesn't, like, we are, yes, North Idaho is, like, experiencing these structural global economic forces. And we're telling people that, like, well, what you're actually experiencing are these, like, small policy changes, you know? And the Republicans maybe are better able to speak to that. I don't know for sure what's changing in there, but I do know, yeah, that the, the extractive industries are are just contracting intensely at that moment. And there is intense suffering in communities, people losing yeah. their jobs, increased like violence in homes. Like it's, and I think just like you think about like what the landscape in Dover looked like at that point, I thought it was like one of my most poignant quotes is like the woman who talks about how quiet it was. Yeah. It was eerie how quiet it was, you know, and you just think about like, well, what are people's lived experiences of place like in this place that has been a hub of activity and trucks have come and gone. And there has been this, hum in the air of the mill and all of a sudden it's quiet and who gives voice to what that quiet feels like like maybe the voices that had been speaking for the people in north idaho those voices failed to acknowledge that change effectively again i studied philosophy right and i and i only have an undergrad but i have this thing that like my one of my philosophy professors would always say it was like just so stories often don't hold up where they don't make enough sense or there's you know it's like kind of the reverse of occam's razor it's like the simplest answer isn't always the correct one because life's rarely simple but when i heard you tell that story about a woman who sounded very you know almost militantly progressive you know, gets a phone call from Donald Trump thanking her for her vote. Like that to me, that, that is kind of what I felt as well. And then briefly to, I like that, that makes sense to me that, that tracks with like the way he just banged on about NAFTA. I was like, I don't, and I didn't understand why he was doing that, but it clearly resonated with folks in Idaho. Like what the effects of NAFTA were need to be separated from how effective the rhetoric about NAFTA was. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. That that totally tracks with like, you've sort of encouraged me to dive deeper into this idea that I had. And I had already kind of gotten there as well. And then I think about this, like my grand, my grandpa was a military man. He was a, he was a crew chief on airplanes in the air force. And that's how he ended up in Spokane at, at Fairchild. But he was a Kennedy Democrat, but Clinton broke his brain too. Like he completely switched with, and it began with Clinton getting elected. And I, I wish he was still around, but he, you know, he died with a, um, had a photo of him like in the same room as Kennedy at an air force base. That was like the proudest thing. He, one of the most, you know, his most prized possessions. And he passed away with a picture of Sarah Palin on his refrigerator. And that, and that, and that shift happened with Clinton or it began happening. And that's, I don't know exactly again, like it's, it's, that's fascinating to me. I mean, I think one of the things that is fascinating 
about this moment is that like the spaces that we live in and we're like a rough belt, mm. but I don't know, but not, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Has anyone written about like, I think the way you said like they, it broke his brain. Like, I feel like, you know, I remember like my friend's grandma had $2 bills or $3 bills. Phony is a $3 bill or something with Clinton's face on it. And she posted it like, you know, this is like a lady who went to the country club and like, who just thought of herself as too, too important to get into politics, you know, and she's passing out. There was just this intensity about, I don't know how he got elected a second time, but you know, and he like, I don't know, like the welfare reform that he passed. And I don't know. I think, I think, yeah. Associating yourself with Clinton was somewhat toxic. Yeah. I do wonder about the Ross Perot part. Like I hadn't ever articulated that, but my family was super like, really thought Ross Perot was going to pull it out. I I remember that. (laughs) I remember that, uh, over here as well. I'm saying over here, like it's not 60 miles apart from y'all Yeah. or, or I guess you, if you were in Montana, it's like a hundred miles, but yeah, like there was a ton of energy around Ross Perot. And when was that? So that was like, I'm like 11 years old at that point. And those are some of my first memories of, you know, the political valence of, of the larger community or whatever. I was like, Oh dang, this short bald guy might pull it out. Uh, he's, and everybody thinks he's just a straight shooter. Yeah, we must be about the same age because, yeah, I think it was about the same age and just kind of trying to figure some of those things out. And I think, you know, I still have a lot, like I still love Montana more than anything in the world. But, you know, Montana has has had really interesting politics for a long time where that shift didn't happen. Like the shift to red didn't happen in a lot of places in Montana in the way it did in Idaho at that time, I don't think. Um, But it's happening now and it's kind of, breaking my heart so but i mean you guys still have john tester and stuff for now yeah <laughs> right we also have the guy who like beat up a like a reporter so oh that guy yeah he's that that guy's a trip yeah What's his, i can't remember his name okay so that's good i'm glad we got through the nafta stuff because i think that was really productive and i thank you so much for your time on that and like just helping think through it with me I don't think we've reached any definitive conclusions, but I at least understand, I, I think I understand where you're coming from. Hopefully you understand where I'm coming from. And it makes a little bit of sense because it's just, it's been, it's all I can think about for the last couple weeks. Yeah. I thought a lot about it. And when I realized like the timelines didn't match up, I was really frustrated and it was actually like, a, uh, like, you know, teaching in a class and students like, well, that was 92, but you're talking about 96. I was like, okay, yeah, good point. Okay. Those timelines are not, they're not actually quite as, but if we think about like, yes, rhetorically, NAFTA is very effective to understand these yeah. these economic changes that we can see on the ground, no doubt. Then then it does make more sense. And yeah, they get connected to, yeah. Yep. I think we're on the same page. So then the mill closes. What, what year did it close again? It closes in 89. Okay. And it was redeveloped into kind of like an upper class or middle upper class community in what, 2000-ish? I think... It was rezoned officially for planned use development in 2005. And that's like basically the mill property that you was where like it was the, the heart of the economics of this town, but also where a lot of the public space was the public beach where people would graze their dairy cows for God's sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all this other stuff. And, and the, um, the bluff that you talk about being so important to like people's childhoods and, and their feelings of place and probably a point of navigation and a point of around which the lives of, you know, native folks had run for thousands of years. Like that all gets sort of, it gets rezoned, but it also kind of gets enclosed, right? Yeah. So it had been kind of this, I mean, it had been de facto public 
faith for a long time. Um, in the 1970s, one of the mill owners, the late 70s, like tries to push people off the beach and they, you know, there's a lot of pushback and the county commissioners get involved. But for, yeah, this, this space had been a de facto public space for a long, long time. I mean, really, like probably since the dawn of time. And I think that's like the, those timelines, that's why it's important to me. Like we can be like, well, since 2005, but it's like, well, since 62 million years ago, <laughs> it was public space. <laughs> well, and because in the, in the 400 years of, you know, capitalism or, and proto-capitalism and primitive accumulation and stuff, it's like, you don't get enclosed lands back. That's one of the big sort of overarching yeah. you know, like through lines is like once land that had been either legally or de facto public becomes private. It doesn't tend to go the other way. Although there are, you know, there's, we do have land, you know, like land trust stuff happening in, in Spokane County. I don't know if you guys have it over there, but, do, yep. but it's like, it, it feels kind of small bore compared with how much has been, you know, privatized. It's, yeah, the it's, it's pretty one directional. Yep. Yeah. You define the folks that move to this place as amenity migrants. Can you kind of explain that term a little bit and, and what it means? Yeah, I mean, I think primarily it, it's trying to articulate people's relationship within kind of the space and the economy. So often they are people who are retired or who are not working in the community um, and whose primary motivation for being there is recreation. Let's, let's just talk specifically about Dover. Is it a mix of folks who live there full time? Is it a mix of second homes? Is it more one than the other? When I did my interview, when I was doing my research in 2016 through 18, the estimate I was given was that 70 to 80% of the people there were second homeowners. Okay. So most, uh, so 20 to 30 people percent of people live there year round. It's possible. That's, that that's just within the new community. Yep. Yeah. It's possible that's changed yeah. in the last four yeah. years, but I don't think that was in tw those were 20, those are 2016 numbers. 2016 to 2018. Yeah. I mean, I was doing lots of data collection in that point and I got that number. That number was something I heard a number of times from different people. It doesn't, you know, doesn't mean it's accurate. It doesn't mean that they didn't all make it up together, right. but that's what that, I was told. That was at least the, that's the sort of community anecdote. At least. Yep. So the, the idea of like these migrants and, and just like this, this sort of cyclical nature of development decline deindustrialization, redevelopment is part of what you sort of borrow from the David Harvey, the idea of a spatial fix for capitalism. Like capitalism is always in, in search of new spaces to sort of occupy and profit off of. Can you, can you talk about how a space can sort of be spatially fixed multiple times? Yeah. So, I mean, I came to Harvey's theory after I had done all this, you know, data analysis and trying to make sense of this. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting that I couldn't make sense of was that, you know, so Dover was pretty explicitly built as a place for extractive industry for certain people to profit. So, and we haven't talked that much, but you know, that the mill had built the water system in Dover. And so when the mill closes or when it gets sold, they tell the people of Dover, like, well, the water was incidental. You're, you don't have water. So they're under a boil order for six years. Um, wow. Their sewer system gets red tagged. So they don't have like they can't build houses, they need to build a new sewer system. So there's all this decline and this deep anxiety and all this work that has to be done for this, the community even to be able to exist, right? If you don't have water, it's pretty hard to have a community. Right. So 
it made the community extraordinarily vulnerable. In that vulnerability, that is when the developer could come in and say, like, all right, you want a new sewer system? You want somewhere to build your sewer system? If you want somewhere to build your sewer system, you're going to have to um, sell it. You're going to have to rezone the land. Right. So, you know, like, so in order to, pro I mean, it's fascinating to me that the developer, and I don't mean that, like, the, like the specific developer, but more like the concept of like the, as development or like how we create profit that for people with wealth, you can create profit by making working people, making working people vulnerable because when people are vulnerable, they will do things they wouldn't do if they were economically secure. And so, you know, the people of Dover were vulnerable because they didn't have their infrastructure was in such serious decline that they had to make agreements that they may not have otherwise been willing to make if they had, hadn't been in those places. Wow. The thing that just I found really heartbreaking was that they had organized to get grants for low-income communi uh, communities to rebuild their water and their sewer system, and that those like systems then were put into place and they also served the development. And that just struck me as so like all American in some really tragic way. Wow. Um, and also like part of the reason they were under such intense timelines to find a place to build their sewer system, which made them need to work with the mill site to have land to build their sewer system on with those grants had a timeline on them. And if they couldn't find a place to build then they were going to lose their funding to, you know, like, yeah, it just didn't take into account their vulnerability or maybe it did, but it was, Right. They were able. To, it was used against them in a way, right? So, yeah. like the sense of like double profiting, right? You build a place for capitalism, fix as you build a place. That place is destroyed through that form of capitalism, and in right. that destruction, then it creates a space for someone new to profit from it. And it was just such a perfect example what happened in Dover. And my guess is that it's a it's a useful tool to understanding change in the rural West and maybe, maybe all communities in particular ways. So obviously the, these are amenity migrants. They're coming for the amenities. They're coming for the lakes, the mountains, the ski hill, and just the slower pace of life. Maybe, you know, especially people who are coming from more urban spaces, but is it fair then? So thinking like what we just said, what we just talked about, but then also thinking that like the, the poor folks that remain are now kind of getting shunted into service industry jobs and stuff like that. Is it fair to say that the extraction in an amenity economy like this is the people themselves? I think I like one of my favorite lines in the book is like the resources being extracted now is paying people three seventy five or four twenty five an hour to wait tables. Um, but I think it's important. Yeah, I think, and this is kind of where the economic my economic lens come in. Like the extract, the thing that we're always extracting is people's labor. That's what we were extracting in the timber economy, and that's what's being extracted now. That is the most important resource. You know, without people's labor, there is no economy. I think just shining a light on that. I think we're in this moment where that's very, very clear how important human labor is to the economy, and that shouldn't be some giant surprise to people, but I think we often really ignore that element of it. I think it's really clear right now because there are, you know, a lot of labor shortages, particularly in North Idaho. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's, it is interesting how the sort of parallel surge of Trump that also led to sort of Bernie and DSA and all that stuff was sort of people standing up and saying like, 
your idea of labor as like mill workers and stuff, it's that and the people who work at Starbucks or the people mm-hmm. who work at the Verizon store. And, and I got to admit, like that was eye opening for me too. Cause I never, you know, I worked a number of service jobs when I was younger. I never thought of myself as a worker. I wouldn't have put myself in that class. And that's maybe one of the ways that these sort of structures and the way we talk about this stuff seeks to sort of divide, subdivide workers. So to sort of destroy solidarity. There was recently um, a, a gallery, there's a gallery in Moscow, the Pritchard gallery, and they did a, exhibit of like these artistic photos from the seventies of loggers. And I just kept thinking like, if this had been 1982, the people like the, most of the people I teach with or that like are, you know, the progressive people, they would have been like pissed off that we're highlighting loggers is like, you know, beautiful exemplars. <laughs> we have such nostalgia for that kind of like working identity, but it's only because it's mm. gone. Yeah. And, you know, like if I try and think about this a lot, like when I'm walking, when I'm driving around town and I see like some kid in his, you know, like zips driving outfit or maybe not a kid, you know, like smoking, smoking a, like a jewel or whatever. And like, like what would that look like as like some artistic photo on the wall in 30 or 40 years? Because those are from now. Yeah. So we are only able to like see people's labor, like through this nostalgic lens often fail to connect the relationship between like labor of the past and labor of the present. That's beautiful. And I'm not convinced that like that there, that during the, like the seventies, you know, that there was actually like a lot of love for timber workers in general, you know, that it's a nostalgic. And I think it's like, well, I mean, I could tie it to a million things. I think it's like a, a nostalgia that tries to, yeah, to decouple the work, the service work that happens today from the work in the past, like one was legitimate and this is kind of illegitimate. You don't need your, you don't need to make a living wage because it's not real work. You know, COVID is bringing about a change where at least in Spokane County, taco time is advertising 14, $15 an hour salaries. And that's still not a living wage in Spokane County, but it's better than it was. You know, like people need schedules. I have three little kids and like people, oh my God. Yeah. you know, people need schedules. They need, they need a reliable income. They need pieces of like their work to allow them to have a life. And I think maybe what COVID did was make it really clear what, how much of our lives we were missing out on. And I don't mean that for me. I have a pretty, like pretty sweet gig, but you know, for yeah. people who, who never knew what they were doing from day to day, never knew what their schedule was doing you got finally this break and you like sat down with your family and realized these are people you actually kind of like, and you're missing not reasonable. This is not what it's supposed to be about. I'm a sociologist, but I think there's something deeply human about having a time to step back and like sit with that, with that and consider like what you want your life to look like and what it's worth. Yeah. So I have just a couple more specific questions. I've had you on for a really long time, but I wanted to ask a couple things. Cause like, um, about rural gentrification. I, I read a couple papers and again, this doesn't make me a sociologist. I'm at best a tourist here. So I'm, I'm looking for your, your thoughts on this. Like it seemed like the theory and stuff that was happening in the nineties was really fascinated by hyper wealthy enclaves like Aspen or park city. And you know, there was like that Aspenization was kind of one of the buzzwords around rural gentrification. But when I think of Aspen, I think of like extremely rich and, ex- but extremely liberal people, is the gentrification of North Idaho just a conservative version of that? Or 
or do the elites in that development in Dover tend to be liberal or, or is it a mix or, or how does that? That's a fascinating question. And I wish I had a better answer for you. I had a selection bias in the people I interviewed. And so the people I interviewed, because I like recruited them from an organization that tends to be a little bit left leaning. Um, gotcha. I thought they'd be, so yeah, they were pretty liberal. Most of them, you know, they were, I thought a, one of them went out of their way to like point out how exploitive they thought the construction teams were like, these guys are working on Thanksgiving, you know, like out and out, you know? And so, but my mom's neighborhood is like, it seems like it is all blue lives matter flags. And it's funny, like the people she's lived in her little neighborhood now for like 25 years and she's lived in Sandpoint longer. Like I feel like they're like making a pact with each other. Like we can't leave each other. You know, I don't think they talk politics. Yeah, in my mom's neighborhood is like all, mostly or so many retired cops. Right. It's just incredible to like walk down her street. You know, people's garages are open and like all this paraphernalia that very clearly identifies them as like retired cops from California. Yeah. And just to be clear, your your mom still lives in the sort of the old part of Dover. No, she lives in um, she lives in Ponderay now. Oh, Ponderay. Okay, so it's north like, of Sandpoint. Yeah, yeah, it's just a little bit north of Sandpoint. That's interesting. So in the case of Dover, though, do you think that the political valence of the development further entrenched people to the right? Or do you not have enough information? I don't have enough information. I mean, I thought I just I just think the George Eskridge part is super fascinating. Yeah. I can't imagine that the people of Dover weren't voting for George. Yeah. Like everybody was like, how do you talk to George? Right. Do you know George? George, George, you know, like he was just, but probably not the newcomers. Right. But I wonder about, I mean, I think you, I bet you could get the, the turns just for Dover, which might be super fascinating. Yeah. I never thought to do that because I'm not a political scientist. And so that, and that just wasn't really part of the research question, but it's now <laughs> thinking cause I'm super, I'm kind of obsessed with them in Lataw County. You know, I'm always looking at the returns from every district. So that would be really, really interesting. I mean, I think I was interested in like the city council races and who was on the council from New Dover versus Old Dover and where the mayor was coming from. I thought that was really fascinating, but those are all partisan races. So I wasn't thinking about it like as a partisan issue, but that would be fascinating to, to see. I actually don't really care about the partisan aspect of it, but it is sort of like the best indicator we have of like those larger political, you know, you know, so sort of where people sit over time. Yeah. It would be really interesting to see. I mean, a lot of the people I interviewed in Dover, it was shocking. It was just, it was a good reminder to me. Like you just don't know people or you can't make assumptions about people because people that I thought, well, for sure, this like old farmer guy I'm interviewing is going to be a Republican or like, you know, died in the world Democrats. Like, you know, we become Facebook friends. I'm like, did not expect to see this. This is not what I thought was going to, you know. And then the lady that's like, you know, it, it was, I think part of it's like, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's why this was so much fun. Oh, yeah. It was my pleasure. I love talking about this kind of stuff. So thanks so much for your time. God, that was fascinating, wasn't it? You know, and it, like, ultimately, there are more variables in the political dynamics of even a small place like North Idaho, then there are letters in the alphabet to document the variables. And maybe the slide was inevitable. Maybe it was. Maybe nothing would have stopped it. But I can't help but thinking after this conversation, after the conversation with Zach, after looking at the data, after like thinking about what it was like around here when I was growing up, maybe that slide wouldn't have been so precipitous. Maybe it wouldn't have happened so quickly if it weren't for the, you know, the deindustrialization that happened for the 20 years preceding it. 
And that's really fascinating to think about as we try to build power or, you know, unfuck things or make things better in the present tense. Like what are we doing now that might have a long tail effect that reaches 20 years into the future? Can we create new structures that over time build a broader base of working people that can look out for their best interests and fight for themselves in this moment where we see sort of atomized workers fighting for more, you know, the, the workforce of today, which has, you know, has gone from the mines to the counter at Taco Bell. The service economy has largely replaced the industrial economy in this country. So what can we build now for those workers so that 20, 40 years in the future, we aren't lamenting how much further things have slid to the right than we currently are? Hell, if I know the answer to that, but it's what I'm thinking about after having this series of conversations. So thank you so much to Ryan Pilgrim. And thanks as always to my man, Connor Bacon on the ones and twos. Thanks also to Alyssa Ball for helping out with the newsletter. And like I said, at the top of the hour, if you've got a buddy who has, or you yourself are that buddy, you could be my podcasting buddy. If you have a background in, you know, it's a specific kind of audio production. It's like, if you know how to do news producing, uh, maybe you did it professionally for a while and you're just looking for a part-time gig whatever, and you like what we're doing here at range specifically, this specific little windmill we're tilting at, now I'd love to hear from you. Also, as always, would be remiss, we'll get yelled at if I do not do this. If you like range, you can support it at rangemedia.co slash subscribe. So the same link that will allow you to sign up for our free emails will also take your money if you want to give it to us. It's 10 bucks a month or $100 a year but we keep all of our content free forever because we, we don't think people being engaged citizens who are informing themselves about the way the world around them works should be contingent on their ability to pay for that content. So we want to give it away for free, but that means that if you can afford to help, please do so we can keep this up. All right, that's it for me this week, guys. Thanks so much. Have a good week. Bye. thing that we're always extracting is people's labor that's what we were extracting in the timber economy and that's what's being extracted now that is the most important resource you know without people's labor there is no economy